0: Hey Brat, how's it going this week?
1: Good, Ange. How are you?
0: Good. Well, that means it's another episode of Money in the Bank, the personal finance podcast where we talk about all things related to personal finance. And just a quick update. We are actually going to be going back to once-a-week episodes for just a little bit here. Um, Brett and I have some kind of big life changes going on, so keeping up with the two-a-week is just a little too demanding. So for the next month or so, it's probably only going to be once-a-week, and then hopefully we can get back to that two-a-week at some point.
1: Everybody loves the really normal Wednesdays. Way normal (laughs) Wednesdays. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, anyways, just want to announce that. Um, and Brett, have you been, you know, studying for your trivia question?
1: No. Why would I study? Well, I'd, a surprise.
0: That's why you don't get them right. Um, all right. So, how many states require a personal finance class in high school?
1: Zero. Easy.
0: Wrong. What? So you can try again.
1: One. Hawaii.
0: Because <laughs> Hawaii is <laughs> all about that personal finance life. Seventeen states.
1: Interesting. So uh,
0: things have changed, I think, since we were kids. Yeah, there was like
1: my... Anybody that I considered an adult when I was a kid, not so great with personal finance. Anybody that I was a peer with or a peer with today, probably not so good with personal finance. Definitely none of that came through the school system. Even a lot of the teachers, I can tell you right now, were probably not that great with personal finance.
0: Yeah, and um, so I will say I was probably on the tail end of this. So I remember... When I was graduating from college, they were implementing a new curriculum at my college, and so for incoming freshmen, my junior or senior year, they were required to take a one credit personal finance class. So I know at least it was like it, it was an up and coming trend, I guess when I was graduating from college. So it doesn't really surprise me that more states are requiring this because I feel like it's been a very popular concept in the last decade at least since we've graduated. And people want this. They want this background to launch themselves to, and and to set themselves up to be more successful as adults. Um, but I also think you hit on a you know good point is it's one thing to just offer this class. And it's another thing to make sure that the person teaching it actually has a really good understanding of all of these topics, because it can be very confusing and And hard to kind of explain some of this stuff.
1: Right, because if they're just reading some off of a book and then they don't relate with that situation or they don't make good choices in their personal life, then it's not going to connect with them either, right? And then there's no way they're relaying that information to the users appropriately or they're going to, like, blow it off or... You know, not believe it or be like oh yeah well they say to do this but that's totally unrealistic right yeah um,
0: so i actually think i had really good examples in high school a lot of my teachers i feel like were pretty good with money and i remember one teacher and i brought this up on the podcast before but she would teach us graveyard lessons and like i remember a lot of her graveyard lessons did involve personal finance, like one of them was never buy a car if you have to get a lease longer or a loan longer than three years. And as an adult, as I was like crunching the numbers, I was like, so really what she meant by this is like never buy a brand new car. Um, (laughs) And you know, another one of hers was like, take your um, income and divide it by four. And that's how much you can spend on rent a month. And all of these like little tricks that she taught me really helped set me up for success. Because I remember when I like graduated college and I was moving to Chicago and I had no idea how much I would be able to afford for rent. Like it just seems like such an artificial thing to come up with after like when you live in college your only goal is to like get it as cheap as possible. And so like having that kind of lesson in the back of my mind really helped set me up to be a more successful adult because I was like, "Oh yeah, you know, my graveyard lesson says" I can take, you know, my income divided by four and that gives me what I can spend on rent.
1: Right. And so why do they call it graveyard lessons again?
0: Because they're lessons that you're going to take to your grave. And she wasn't wrong. I don't remember what subject she taught, but I remember all of my graveyard lessons.
1: (laughs) All right. Well. So like it
0: might have been English or health. I really don't remember. Definitely not like these random tidbits of... True knowledge she gave to that's, me. That's
1: the only thing that stuck was the anecdotes in class. But it mm.
0: wasn't, like, she would dedicate a good chunk of time to graveyard lessons, which is why I went to, um, you know, a school that never really had good statewide scoring, because we were too busy learning the good shit.
1: The, the core life lessons. Yeah. Yeah. Not, well, not part of the Scantron exam.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, some people passed a Scantron exam in eighth grade. I learned how to not get myself in debt. Some of us are winning later in life now. <laughs>
1: probably true.
0: <laughs> um so anyways, today I kind of wanted to do an episode on what you wish they taught in high school because I like I said, I know how much I valued these little graveyard lessons. So I wanted to kind of share, I guess some high level personal finance items that everyone should know. And so you know, the target audience for this podcast is obviously a little bit more beginner level than what we typically talk about. Most of the things that we're going to talk about today, we have other podcasts about as well if you're interested. If we say something and you're like, "I want to know more about that topic." I encourage you to like search our website. We probably have some other really good stuff about it, but this is just going to be a hot, like a big overview of like this is what you should know and
1: Should have learned, should have
0: learned. And as adults, these are good areas where if you, you know, if you take your income and you divide by four, and your monthly mortgage is higher than that, it might mean that you have too much house, not saying you do have too much house, but it could indicate that. So it's a good check in as well of like, oh, these are guidelines I didn't know existed because we were never taught this stuff. But now I know and now I can do like a good check in with myself. So, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So, the number one thing that I hear most people want, especially this time of year, is to know more about taxes in all high right. school. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I wanted to kind of start at the beginning because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about taxes and what it really means. So, when you first get a job, and this was, ex- you know, this was actually another graveyard lesson, but, uh, when I first got my job, you have to decide if you want to withhold zero or one. Typically, it's like a single young kid, right? Right, it's, anybody
1: Anybody that gets like a first job has to kind of make that decision, right? Right. And then they're like, I have no idea why would I ever be asked this? This is stupid.
0: Yeah, and so I remember the way it was explained to me was if you if you do zero, it means that more taxes will get taken out of your paycheck, but you'll get more back at the end of the year. And if you choose one, fewer taxes will be taken out of your paycheck, but you will get less back at the end of the year and the point that i really want to make with this is you pay the same amount of taxes no matter what you decide here it's just when you pay it okay so i think some people think oh if i choose one i pay more taxes
1: right that's what i assumed when i had that decision to make right it's like oh they're just taking less out of my paycheck right or more out of my paycheck either way right uh, take advantage of the money now so what are they doing with it when are they when are they taking it out
0: so so, if you when you do a withholding, they take it out of your paycheck, and then when you file your taxes and they're due April fifteenth, then you you kind of calculate if they took out too much or not enough, and that's where you true up. So you get it at the end of the day, you pay the same amount. It's just if you paid too much, then you get it back by April fifteenth. So, what do I recommend here? Well, I recommend that you actually try to get your refund as close as zero to zero as possible. Because the time value of money dictates that it's better to have that cash in hand faster, and invest it or save it or do whatever you want with it, rather than basically giving the government a zero percent interest loan for the year, and then you know they pay you back in April.
1: So how do I how do I control that dollar amount then? If my choices are zero and one.
0: So I, for most um, you know single individuals, I would recommend just selecting one because one withholding is going to be the right amount. Where this gets trickier is once you're married or you have kids, with withholdings aren't just zero or one, right? You can have two, three, four, five. And so what I recommend and what I've you know what I've done with our taxes is we both selected a number and then I said, whoa, we're getting way too big of a refund. So I'm going to change mine to, you know, one now instead of zero. And then I would reevaluate at the end of the next year. And so there's been years where we've owed a little bit. There's been years where we get a lot back. And I use that to kind of adjust my withholdings for the next year.
1: So how do you even know that? Like what what pieces of data are you looking at to even like know where you are throughout the year? You're just looking at your pay stubs?
0: No, I'm sorry. I wait until I get my refund at the end of the year.
1: Oh, so it is an annual review. It's an
0: annual item for me. Okay, so you just yep. have
1: to kind of like estimate...
0: Yeah. Uh, So once I get to my annual number, if I owe a bunch of money, then I'm like, okay, I need to crank my withholdings down because they didn't take enough out. mm -hmm. And if I have to pay or I'm sorry, if they pay me a bunch of money, I'm like, oh, I paid too much, let me bump my withholdings up. And it's as simple as that. So Okay. Does that make more sense?
1: Yeah, easy, you know, confusing process. Don't have a lot of control, but you want to balance it out. So you're opt you know, this is kind of one of those like I'm optimizing to optimize type strategies where i don't want to give the government i don't want to loan the government a bunch of extra money right um i'd rather have that for myself exactly you you also don't want to like have to just like show up with a bunch of money at the end of the year anyway because that gets a lot of people in trouble right when they're not you know retaining a lot of that stuff so you want to kind of balance it out
0: yep exactly okay so the second item i want to talk about is credit cards now this is an area where i want to give some facts but then i also want to let everyone know that credit cards are not the bad like this bad horrible evil thing that you should never use right
1: right, they're just another system
0: yeah so so with credit cards i think the most important thing i kind of learned as when i was younger is that credit cards are not used for something that you can't afford and you want to pay for over time credit cards are used to build your credit score so it's great to get a credit card and put on like gas or you know groceries things that you're going to pay for anyways and then pay them off each and every month because if you don't interest actually accrues on credit cards daily so if you have a balance every single day it gets more and more interest on top of it
1: right you want to use it for your fixed expenses what you were already paying for it's not for lavish goods or things that you couldn't afford otherwise and you should always 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 pay off the balance 100 percent at the end of the month or yeah. when it, when the balance is due Exactly. Right? you should never you should never ever have interest on your credit card that is the that is immediately how you lose the game
0: um, yep so i think a lot of people get scared of credit cards for that reason because they're like oh you know you everybody knows somebody who got into trouble with credit cards who put way too much on it and they're in all this debt and the simplest you know what's my favorite saying an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure mm-hmm. and really it's you know the. If you never put too much on your credit card, you will always be able to pay it off. So I think where a lot of kids, especially when I was in college, where a lot of people got in trouble was they wanted to go on spring break. They couldn't afford to go on spring break, so they would put the whole trip on their credit card. Well, come to find out, you don't just like magically get the money because you decided to put it on a credit card and then you end up owing money and it just compounds and it grows really quickly. So. Pay it off, and there is a myth. Um, I heard a myth from somebody recently, actually, that they thought you your credit score went up by carrying a credit card balance and making the minimum payment on it, and that's a total lie. Um, you can have the statement balance and you can pay it off without ever paying any interest, and your credit score is going to be just fine. I know because I've never paid interest on any of my credit cards, and I have a good credit score.
1: Yeah, me either. Like so, yeah, we have yeah we have great credit scores
0: like. So that's a total myth. Nope. You, you don't have to carry a balance to build that. Yeah,
1: you never, ever have to pay them any money extra other than what you already paid the store for. Right?
0: Yeah. All right. So then the third one, and this is a U.S. specific thing. I feel like every other country has realized that this is a stupid process. But the art of writing a check and balancing a checkbook. <laughs> we are one of the few countries left that our banks still use checks because they are kind of a bad system, right? So... When you write a check, it's a paper check, and you mail it in somewhere, and then that person has to deposit it. And what's really frustrating for a lot of people is when you write that check, the money isn't deducted from your bank account until that person cashes it. Right. And most checks are valid for 60 to 90 days. So you could write a check you know, back in February, and the person might just now in April be getting around to cashing it, and you forgot all about it. And so where this gets people into trouble is say that you wrote a $1,000 check, thought it was already taken out of your account, spent some more money, your balance is sitting at $500, then that person finally remembers to cash your check and all of a sudden your $500 is negative.
1: Right.
0: So that's why it's really important whenever you write a check to make sure that you have a note somewhere. and. This used to be in a physical checkbook that people carried around. I remember my mom, when I was younger, would take it to the grocery store. As soon as we like got groceries, she would write that amount in it and like hand the check over. I would say that check usage isn't as common anymore. So most people don't carry around a checkbook. So what I like to do is, you know, I kind of always have my accounts online that I look at. But if I write a check, I just in excel i'll pull in like my manual okay this is what my checking account's at and then i'll put a note that says "On you know on this day i wrote this check and then i'll just keep an eye on that and make sure that i know how much that my account balance really is at until that check finally clears my account and then i can kind of delete that side spreadsheet
1: right i mean or if you're a business owner please stop using checks and you know only having checks is the only option for payment Right, it's getting to the point where there's so many available systems that are super easy to use and super available that there there is really no good reason to continue using this process
0: anymore. Exactly, and we're landlords actually. um, None of our tenants pay with checks anymore. Right. So um, it's very very easy for us to. We have different apps that are very easy to set up that accept payment that way and are more secure. We've actually. Everybody, nobody wants to write us checks anymore. I, I remember one of our new tenants was like, oh great, Like you use you know one of these apps. I just feel like it's so much more secure, was like the comment he made to me. Um, so people genuinely are really receptive to not writing checks. And it's super easy to do bank to bank transfers as well. So yeah. like Zelle is super popular, Google Pay, there's literally a million apps out there. So you do not have to use checks and I would encourage you to get away from it. But we still find that we have to write them to business owners for services that we get all the time, so.
1: Right, and it gets a little tricky from a business owner's perspective. If you are a sole proprietor, um, you can use, uh, Google Pay actually allows you to take commercial payments through your sole proprietorship up to uh, like a pretty high dollar amount, right? Like, so that's what we use for, we can easily pay our, uh, our rental income can get paid to us through that model. That is the only one that I know allows Commercial access though for free for free no service fees at all for either you or the client um, and that's the way it is right now I don't know if they're going to change that policy um, but that's you know awesome for us yeah um, and for and for the users otherwise there's always some kind of you know small couple dollars a month five dollars ten dollars a month fee that usually gets passed back to the tenant for for landlord rent payments for rental situations. Um, but right, yeah, we found a way around that, so we're super happy about it. Yeah, but checks, checks are inherently kind of insecure, right? You have. One, your signature is put directly on it and available to the person you're handing it to. It has your bank account information directly imprinted on the check that you don't really want people to have access have to. Yeah, your
0: routing number and your account number. Right, so they
1: have access to like, probably the most sensitive banking info if they wanted to take that and go somewhere else or hook up your account online, like that's what they can do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and right, so it gets, it gets a little sketchy. That plus like a little bit of social engineering um, with a phone call to a bank account, you know, clerk or something and boom somebody has access to your bank account so not releasing that information is a much better scenario and all these systems that have like you know invisible pass-throughs for this money and right it's just like a a, an invisible handshake in the background where you don't have to exchange a lot of personal information or or routing numbers and stuff like that is just it's just a much better model to be a part of so we need to get off the check system
0: exactly all right so the next one i want to talk about is just a quick intro into budgeting. We've done a lot more about budgeting in past episodes, but the like biggest tips that I remember learning at a young age were my fixed costs should never be more than 50% of what I make. So this is anything that you pay on a fixed regular basis, like your rent, your car payment, your utilities, your phone bill, all of that. Um, none That should all be less than 50%. And then your discretionary income should be about 30%, that's, you know, any of your variable expenses like groceries, going out to eat, entertainment, um, gas, all that sort of thing. And then you should, and what I always learned was pay yourself first and save at least 20% of your take home pay should be saved. Um, And I, I actually followed that like from, you know, job numero uno out of college. And obviously, you know, from there, I could expand my savings if I wanted to. But I think for the average person, if you can get to that, I save 20% of what I make. That's a super awesome number to hit because, you know, a lot of that can go towards your future retirement, but a good chunk of that can go towards mid to long term savings goals as well, like buying a house or car or anything like that.
1: Right. And those rules are relatively scalable, too, right? They they make it a lot better for you over time, right? So as you mm-hmm. as you like continue working in your career and making a little bit more money every year, that just does you more favors, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're still you're still inflating your lifestyle by the you know, those other percentages, right? My living expenses are going to go up, you know, if I double my income over 25 years, then all you know that assumes my expenses all doubled too, right? But you know starting out that way those are there's like good baseline rules to live by and the, again just always reminding at the back of your head that if you can keep your fixed expenses fixed and you can continue dumping more in the savings realm then that just is the recipe for you know retiring early
0: right exactly um, or just giving yourself more options of like i think it's becoming increasingly common especially for millennials to like want to just take six months off and go travel and you know, having savings is what allows you to do that. So that's always like a really, you know, good thing to shoot for. But, you know, we also recently just did an episode on the cost of college. So obviously saving money is just a really good thing to do for whatever kind of future goals you have and they're different for everybody. You know, for some people it's paying for kids' colleges, retirement, etc., but these are all, you know, really really good things. So, um, I think starting at that it, shooting for that 20% range is like a really good foot in the door. And then you can adjust up or down from there based off of your specific goals.
1: So, so I'm going to tack one onto this one. Uh, I don't know if it's your number five or if there's more, but, um, in order to enable this one, you need to know how much you're spending. Right. And we've talked about this like 25 times on the podcast, right. Of you need a system to control visibly where your money is going. And it needs to be super automatic and happen in the background. You need to just be able to pull it up at any time or have it send you reminders or notifications or summaries or anything like that. It needs to be like the a super dumb system that just works for you all the time with no effort, right? And that's why both of us independently started using mint.com as are like very easy way to keep track of things you just add your credit card accounts you add your bank accounts it just you hook it all up one time and it like constantly is monitoring all of your active spending through credit cards and through even even like pay transactions or even checks right all that stuff shows up through the system through your bank accounts Um, and so that tells you exactly where these are going you're able to like Track your spending and track these in different categories to map them up to the percentages that Angela is talking about for this this category. Yeah. Right. So that's that's what enables this one to be possible. Like trying to calculate all this stuff manually is a fool's errand, right? Like it, it's very difficult and nobody's going to continue doing that forever. Um. And you know we found that you know there's other there's a couple other tools out there too, but the free one uh, that we use is Mint.com for just hooking the stuff up and you know kind of setting it and just kind of monitoring these things and the background
0: yeah exactly um that's a really good point so yeah that kind of covers all the budgeting one um the next one i had on my list was actually my favorite topic which we've done an episode about as well but compound interest and really what compound interest is is it's the eighth wonder of the world that magically allows you to put money somewhere and then Basically, that money turns into like little worker bees for you and just helps you grow your money over time. And so if you do that, if you park your money in one of these awesome investments called a mutual fund, then in about 10 years, that money will double. And then another 10 years after that, that entire balance doubles. So now we're looking at four times what you put in originally, and that just keeps happening every 10 years, and it's magic. So the really awesome thing about that is the earlier you start, the better it is. So it's never ever too late, um, and if you didn't start yesterday, then you can start today, which is really cool. And um, this this is what is really going to be the secret sauce that allows you to retire someday. Because I see article every single day about how we are in a retirement crisis here in America, and I look at the balances that people have saved up, and it's just like simply not enough and not enough. And I think more and more people are you know taking out of their four hundred one k's at younger ages do not do that put that money in there leave it alone and let compound interest work its magic
1: right and most people just don't need a lot of stuff right no. and that's what people think like i have to have to keep inflating my lifestyle i have to have this thing you know i need to buy this stuff and then uh when something bad actually happens right then they don't have enough money to like get by and then they have to pull money out of their 401k or they're like oh i need to no, I, I really want to get a new car and the new car I want is a brand new car and it's like 50,000 and they pull money out of their 401k to be able to like go toward, you know, go toward that. Yeah. And that that's super dangerous cuz you're never paying that back cuz your car's just depreciating. Well, um,
0: And and on another note of speaking about how little you need. So I was actually just reading Pioneer Girl written by Laura Ingalls and in it her daughter was talking about how they basically went through the great depression and they like lost all of their money because it was all in the stock market right mm-hmm. and so they have like no money and she's like the daughter is like sitting there stressed out about how they're gonna pay their bills meanwhile laura Ingalls, who you know grew up in a log cabin was like oh well we just we're gonna cut all of our expenses out so they had a garden she's like canning her own food and then she's like yeah just turn off the electricity i don't need it And her daughter's like what are you doing mom like We have to have electricity. And Laura's like, no, we can't afford it. So, like, that's maybe an extreme example, but I think, like, it's a good example in the sense of if you're digging into your retirement account early, just think of it as, like, that is, like, there better be some crazy, crazy situation that you absolutely need that money. Like, you don't have food on the table, you don't have a roof over your head. That
1: is, like, pants on fire kind of situation.
0: Right. And if you're doing it to, like, buy a car or, buy a new house or buy a boat or whatever crazy thing, like stop, drop, and don't do it. <laughs> um, so That's the saying. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the next one I wanted to touch on was student loans. So I think the, the big guidance here is if you are young and listening to our podcast and you haven't gone to college yet, work to take out as few student loans as possible. That was a strategy that worked really, really well for me. I only took out how much I needed to cover, like the balance due every semester, instead of taking out like the full tuition and room and board package that they were offering me. So that's super huge to do. And then um, the second thing I think is super important is to pay them off as fast as humanly possible. Um, I know you know some people will refinance them and invest the difference, but for me, it's you know it's different than a mortgage because you don't have anything backing that to sell, right? So when you own a house and you have a mortgage on it, you can always sell the house and pay the mortgage off. But with your student loans, you can't do that. So getting that debt to a manageable amount or eliminating it completely, it for sure is one of the best things I've ever done. And even if it would have been slightly more optimal for me to invest my money instead, I wouldn't change my decision for anything because I would still have student loans if I didn't pay them off early. And I'm so glad that I don't have that fixed monthly payment anymore.
1: Yeah, we, we know so many people that just take out as, as many loans as they could to like do whatever they wanted, you know, party all the time, go on vacations. Um, it was just like, basically you replaced income with that ability to take out loans and just maxed it out. And then just like treated that money like you were making like $100,000 a year or whatever, right? um and that's just not the case right so you're, yeah. you're basically uh going into debt constantly it's worse than not having any money right is having less than no money right and that's just not the mentality that we have today for most college kids
0: exactly okay so the next one i wanted to talk through is credit score now credit score is something that i was focused on early in my life. So I got a credit card at 18. And I started paying on it. Um, You know, I started charging a few things here and there to it and paying it off and building that credit score, which was super important, because as I got older, and it was, you know, I was in the market for a house in my early 20s, it made it far easier to go through that process because I had credit. And another thing I will say, so a lot of people I talk to a lot of parents that are like oh my kid's turning 18 but like i would never let them get a credit card well it's it gets harder to get one so when you're 18 and you don't have credit credit card companies expect that but if you wait until you're like 23 and you've never had a credit card it gets harder and you might have to do a secured credit card which is through your bank where you basically take in like 500 dollars and they hold on to that 500 dollars for you and that's your whole credit balance mm-hmm. so you know, you're just charging against that. And um, so it gets a lot more more challenging. So I would say get a credit card, but learn to be responsible with it at a young age. And that's a huge lesson all in itself.
1: Yeah. And then, I mean, the younger you can instill those policies, like, great, like give them a credit card, make sure they're using it appropriately. That's going to just in- ensure that that behavior continues on for the rest of their life. If you like, don't let them get a credit card and then until they graduate from college and then all of a sudden like after they have a job and are living in an apartment and making payments that way, um, great. Then they need to go out and have a credit card. And like everywhere today, you like need to have a credit card for like everything, right? So it's, I, I think this is becoming less and less of an issue, but you're exactly right. You need to have the ability to pay on that and be responsible with it as early as possible. Well,
0: and the other thing I want to bring up is um, there's a difference between credit and debit cards. So, credit cards you charge against and then you have to pay that balance off every month. Debit cards are attached to your bank account and just deduct the balance out right when you use it. It's basically like a check, but you can swipe it. Yep. Um, Why I wanted to bring that up is a lot of people are like, no, I'd rather just use a debit card because, you know, I don't, credit cards are the devil. I hear that a lot. But debit cards are actually much less secure because if somebody commits fraud and steals your credit card, you can call the credit card company. They can place a hold on that charge, not let it go through. You never have to pay it off. But if somebody steals your debit card and they go to the ATM and they take money out, that is gone forever. There are some banks that might give you that money back, but a lot of times it's gone.
1: Right. Most policies are like they, they just have direct line access to your bank. And, right, if you're not, like, looking at your bank statement every day, they could take out, like, the limit's $500 a day for most debit cards, right? They could continually take out $500 every single day if they have access to your debit card and, and you're like, they figure out what your PIN is, which is, again, another one of those super easy social engineering things to do. Um, And, right, so you you could be, your bank account would be at zero before you even knew anything was happening when your card got denied somewhere.
0: Yeah, so from that perspective, like, credit cards are actually a lot more secure as well. Um, So the last point that I wanted to talk about is the art of negotiation. So I think another big lesson that I learned as a kid that when you're buying something expensive, the price tag on it is never the final price. So this goes for cars, this goes for houses, but this even kind of goes for like some smaller stuff like you can almost always get a deal there's almost always room for negotiation and when you're making a big purchase like this don't be afraid to ask if there's any discounts
1: right and i mean if even if you're you find a price on something in one spot i mean in today's world you can look that up across you know, 50 different places or look on eBay, or right. I have a friend that just like lives by eBay, right? He refuses to buy anything that's brand new unless it's like at least 10% off. And usually on eBay, a lot of stuff's brand new. A lot of people that used to use eBay 10 years ago think everything's just like an auction house now. No, most companies put their actual products on there now too, just like Amazon. And you can get stuff that's brand new from certified vendors And a lot of times it's still cheaper there anyway Yeah, because there's so much more competition in that market space.
0: So one one good story I have about this is Brett and I needed a new couch for probably like two years before we finally bought one. And we picked out the couch we wanted, but it was more than we wanted to spend. So we started negotiating and we talked them down to what we thought was a pretty reasonable price. But then I saw an ad that said they were having a big like Labor Day sale the next weekend. So I was like, oh Brett, like let's keep this price, but we'll come back for Labor Day and see. So we go back for Labor Day and we have a different salesperson helping us and they're like, your price, like we can't even get that low with the Labor Day sale. but because you have it like printed on that sheet, you know will accept that price point i was like okay good now i'm happy um <laughs> yeah
1: just whoever we were talking to the first day like gave us like some ridiculously low price and the people in the store you know weren't really happy about it
0: but they had to honor it but they and, had to honor and it and yeah. so i think that's another thing if somebody tells you no it just means that you're not talking to the right person so
1: yeah just you know, never keep, be afraid to walk going. away especially on an in-person negotiation for a big item like appliances or uh certainly a car um, you really have to be able to like walk away from one two three different places and you know go and shop around in those areas because it'll save you a tremendous amount of money way more than optimizing uh you know your taxable income at the end of the year really right? like, <laughs> your ones and zeros yeah yeah. Um, yeah yeah you can save it all you know for 10 years right up there and just negotiating your car price
0: right well and especially a house you know i mean that's a huge thing that don't pay more for a house than you're comfortable with. Don't let yourself get emotional and think that there's only one house for you. You know, there's a lot of houses out there and if you have to walk away from one, it's sad, but it's not the end of the world. So, you know, be be willing to do that to make sure that, you know, especially kind of like we said with budgeting, all of your fixed costs are staying in that 50% realm. So, All right. Well, is there anything else that you want to add, Brad, or anything else you wish you learned? Or or did you have any great teachers like I did that taught you anything great in high school?
1: Uh, There's no such thing as a free lunch, and uh, I'd be happier with the dollar.
0: All right. Well, I think the the second one was from The Simpsons. It was. I don't think you learned that at school, but I'll let it slide. Um, All right. Well, then, Another parting advice from a graveyard lesson that has nothing to do with personal finance but stuck in my head just the same is always fill your dinner plate with at least 50% vegetables. Oh, yeah? So, you know.
1: I mean, we kind of do that now. It just kind of happened that way. We learned how to cook vegetables that don't taste terrible. Uh, I think that was the difference between now and what my childhood was like. Sorry, Mom. Uh, (laughs) Just butter... Like, microwave vegetables with some butter and salt, or margarine, I guess, at the time. Ugh. Uh, and a little bit of salt and pepper was never. The
0: Which is I'd funny answer. because all I do is I steam your vegetables and I put on some butter and yum yum powder.
1: And cayenne powder and sometimes like soy sauce and sometimes some other things, sometimes that's onion true. powder. You gotta change it up once in a while. I think that's the moral of the
0: story. All right. Well, anyways, so eat your vegetables and.
1: I'd be happier with the dollar.
0: I'd be happier with the dollar. All right. Thanks for tuning in this week. Oh, and I forgot, Brett, we are going to start doing Listener Mail. So I'm really excited about this new ending segment instead of just ending our podcast.
1: Am I going to have to start mailing you or what? No.
0: So we've been getting some questions in and one of them um, I actually wanted to bring up. So somebody emailed us after our last podcast because you mentioned on it that uh-oh. The only yeah, this was a bad boo boo that you made. You said that the only good laptop in Best Buy was the most expensive one, and so we got somebody who said, "I'm in the market for a new laptop." And on the episode, Brett mentioned that the only good laptop at Best Buy is the most expensive one. My current laptop is about six years old and just so slow. I was hoping to spend five to seven hundred dollars on a laptop, not a couple thousand dollars. I saved the money so I can buy the laptop, but now I'm not sure if I should buy a used one. Buy a crappy new one, or just keep using my old one. Help.
1: Oh, that's an interesting topic. I've been watching these videos for a million years since I was started since we started with our computer company back in the day. That's watching some of those shows that you talk about you call in for help uh, with technology problems. That's like what I got what got me interested in the first place with technology. So interesting question for me. So yeah, probably misspoke, I guess. There are probably no good laptops at Best Buy. Uh, for the price, uh, for the value, I'll say, right? Um, Everything is super overpriced for the most part. Um, And anything that is a cheaper price that you're gonna, that is like high quality parts um, or higher quality parts in the first place is gonna come with a bunch of crap on it that they make a bunch of money off of like spyware or not spyware, but like adware and antivirus programs that you really shouldn't use and they want you to pay for and like free crappy versions of Word and a bunch of other stuff, right? Um, that's a bloatware is what we call that. Right. And so you're, you're probably better off getting something online if you can, you know, you're right. If you're not on a time crunch, right. The only reason I would ever pick something up at Best Buy is if I like absolutely needed something and I dropped mine in a lake and I was on the way to somewhere where I had to have a computer. Right. Um, so, um, there are good deals on Amazon. There's really good deals on new Um, there's, a uh, really good deals on ebay also for both new and used and or refurbished computers Um, but i think it comes down to exactly what your criteria is first right like we bought angela a new computer um last year was it already Mm -hmm. and right we we've had really good luck with asus computers asus and um you know we were kind of in the market for another one for her because her other one was after like seven years or something, yeah. you had yours. Um, it just started getting like really slow and yeah, we could have replaced the hard drive out, but there, you know, there were some other, the battery was going too, so it was just time for her to get a new one. And so we found you got to be w- willing to time and wait for a good deal. Cause there's always good deals, uh, electronics and sp- specifically computers and like graphics cards and processors and power supplies. If you're going to be building like a desktop, um, those are always on like a cyclical uh, uh, sale cycle and these things do like just tank in price eventually
0: yeah and so we've mentioned it before on the podcast but we really like to use camel 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 Um, it helps you compare prices on amazon to see what the lowest price was what the current price is and it kind of helps do a quick check to see you know is this a good deal right now should i wait a month Um, and that sort of thing and you can set price alerts as well which is super helpful, but yeah, my laptop was right in that you know seven hundred dollar range that the um, listener mentioned, and I think for me the big thing was I had to be willing to kind of compromise on some certain things. So I, I'm not a heavy laptop user, but you know it has everything I need. It doesn't have a touch screen, so for the size that I wanted and all of that good stuff, um, getting a touch screen would have added a lot of money, but not enough value.
1: Right, because you wanted yours to be like pretty light like so yours mm-hmm. is like more in that like you know lighter end kind of notebook range um the ultra book kind of category right uh yeah w- getting the touchscreen would have put you like easily over nine right. right like there was no like middle ground there where we we're gonna like squeeze that in um and like the you know the camera wasn't really as important the microphone and stuff that's not as important uh, the you know the USB ports like having like USB C since we're moving to that having a camera card reader slot was really important for you um, having a good keyboard layout is always something that people don't really think about but that's like a pet peeve of mine is like I like wanted to like not have some weird keyboard layout where like the enter key and the delete key are like different sizes and like in weird spots um, that you know Toshiba's are, are kind of weird about that um but other than that you're just looking at i mean the stats don't really matter for computers anymore for the most part hard drive size is like pretty much irrelevant because a lot of stuff's backed up on the cloud anyway um you want to get a solid state drive if you haven't had one of those yet absolutely definitely get a solid state drive that will change your life um as far as like your boot time on the computer will be like 10 seconds instead of like 10 minutes um even you know even seven years later um getting a bigger battery like that's probably a factor for some people uh versus like the lightweight factor um if you're going to be gaming on it that's a totally different model right you're probably not going to be getting an ultrabook that has any kind of gaming capability um in it at all um but there are some like pretty good gaming laptops wow you can i get can for, play
0: blooms on this just <laughs> fine
1: <laughs> yeah you're not playing battlefield 5 that's for sure um but right so there's it's hard to answer this for one particular circumstance without a little bit more data of, of kind of what the user is looking for. Um, but if you look on a review site specifically, like Tom's Hardware uh, does really good reviews for different laptops and like different things. Um, certain shows like uh, Oh, what is it? Tech thing. Um, tech thing is what I've been watching Patrick Norton for a long time. He's a cool guy to follow on Twitter or just ask any questions to about very, very individual particulars. He's very in-depth in the computer market and what to buy and, and any questions you have in general about um, particulars about technology. Again, that's one of the original guys that I used to watch when I was like I don't know, 13 and he's still doing like uh, tech shows today. <laughs> wow. So um, he's been in the industry forever and pretty knowledgeable and um, it's another good resource yeah i said i said newegg i said check ebay but just compare the prices yeah camel, camel camel.com as you said um, pull that up you can copy like an amazon link you can copy you know links from different websites and paste them in there and it'll give you the full price history of like what that was and when it when it was those prices and when they spike up and down and so you know right off the bat whether you're getting a good deal or not um, or whether you're buying at the high point for that laptop and that particular piece of equipment um, but yeah, so I, I think it's the right thing. Don't be, don't be too hasty to buy something um, unless you know it's the right choice. But yeah, you can go, if you're physically gonna go look at something in the store, um, at least do a price comparison, right? If you're gonna say like, yeah, I, I played with this laptop at Best Buy um, or Staples or whatever. And uh, it, w- it seemed really great and this was the price they were offering me, just go look up that price online and see like, is that a good deal? And can I find this particular computer at other places, right? Just write down the, the model number. Sometimes the model number gets a little weird um, because like Best Buy has like models that are specifically built for them, like from Dell or from whatever, right? And so like that model is like the the Best Buy only model. So you have to just look at like some other models that are very similar to it um, to get like the, the the general kind of price, but. Uh, it's hard to go wrong nowadays, like most, most computer hardware is still pretty good, pretty efficient. If you just need something to just like mostly use web browsing and word processing for, uh, it's really hard to go, long, go wrong. So uh, getting something that's a little bit lighter, uh, and a little bit easier to carry around on a regular basis, if you're going to be carrying it around is uh, usually what I try and go in the direction of.
0: Okay, well, hopefully that helps. Um, You gave a lot of good information there and a lot of websites. So I will summarize some of that and toss it up on our website to be a good resource. And thanks for shooting in a question. So as I kind of mentioned, this is our first listener mail. But going forward, we're going to read one every week and answer your questions live on air. So it'll be kind of like a fun thing for us to do. So if you do have any questions, feel free to shoot them over. to angie at moneyinthebank.com and as always I will drop all of the contact information in so thanks for tuning in this week Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Money in the Bank. Make sure to subscribe to us on the iTunes or Stitcher app so that you get weekly alerts every time we post a podcast. Or if you want, you can visit my website, Money moneyinthebankpodcast.com. And if you want to reach out with any questions or further comments, please email me at angie at moneyinthebankpodcast.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Money in the Bank.